Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. I'm Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is The Silent Alarm, where we're public alerting systems during COVID-19. In this episode, we will discuss some of the reasons why emergency public alerting systems have not been widely used during COVID-19. Did EM professionals leave this valuable tool in the tool chest? Or have we just not reached the all-hazards usability level we need with some of these systems? To help us answer these questions, we'll be speaking with public alerting guru Jacob Westfall, diving into some of the history around pandemic alerting and reviewing some core knowledge around effective alerts. All this and more in this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. So, Grayson, I haven't seen you in a while. How's the uh, pandemic going? (laughs) All I know is that we have not released an episode since May, and now it is somehow November. (laughs) Yes, well, we did uh, get to meet with some of our friends at DemCon for our two days of live broadcast, but certainly it's nice to get back to some uh, routine with our monthly episodes. And our podcast wasn't the only thing that was suspiciously silent over the last few months. Emergency public alerting systems, uh, commonly used for natural disasters, were also quite lacking. Yeah, you might remember, uh, depending on what uh, distribution lists you're on, there was a survey that was sent out uh, regarding this, uh, where some researchers were trying to get a sense of what the public's expectation was for public alerting and pandemics. So to find a little bit more about why COVID uh, didn't have the public alerting of something like a tornado, we talked to Jacob Westfall. Now, this interview was recorded on June 19th, 2020, and this was before some of the additional apps and uh, COVID public tracing options came out so keep that in mind and please as you listen consider how you have used public alerting in your day-to-day hi uh, yeah my name is jacob westfall i'm the chief technology officer with tz uh, public emergency alerting services inc and i really provide a lot of the guidance and background and understanding to how to take the somewhat complex field of how to issue emergency alerts and get the public to take action and then translate that into products that we offer, such as the mobile app and and other alerting methods. And my interest really got started back when some of the technology methods were somewhat limited. Uh, So you had radio and television. um, uh, Texting was just coming on the scene. Um, There was some manual dialing of phones that was available. And at the time, I was was looking at the the market and saying, you know, there's got to be a better way to leverage new and existing technologies, especially through the Internet, to be able to communicate to people during an emergency because not everyone happens to be listening to a radio station or watching a TV program at the exact same time to, to receive this type of information. And so from there, I've uh, really got heavily involved uh, internationally, as well as in Canada, leading a lot of the standards that have been developed for how to do public emergency alerting. And as part of that work uh, with PZ has been developing some of those new technologies. How can we better reach the public to get them to take action in order to protect themselves and their property during an emergency. Is alerting all about technology? There are absolutely things that are true about alerting regardless of the technology. Um, Because you have to have some measure of communication, which is really what alerting is about, you've got to communicate in some fashion. So in the past, that might have been the town crier, someone on a horse running around. That's presumably a piece of technology really is, is how do I get this information and spread it as broadly and effectively as possible, that's really what you're looking to to exploit, is those communication methods to get that uh, that emergency information, that warning out to to the public. 
Um, we've talked about alerting before on the show, and, and one of the key differences seem to be that alerting is, is one way and communication is two way. Have you seen that trend change at all? Well, absolutely. I see the trend of that two way interaction. Um, that was very key to uh, rolling out some of the social media channels that, uh, that have been offered to, to be able to do public alerting. Uh, so in the past, typically, you know, you can't have the public respond back to a, um, a TV interruption or a radio interruption. Typically, the method the public would respond back is they would all call 911 to complain, what the heck's going on? Why am I getting this alert? Now you have an opportunity with a lot of the communication channels to get much more personal feedback from that individual that, yes, I see the tornado coming or um, no, I don't see anything. Why, why, why am I getting this alert? And then you can have that interaction, that, that communication with them, well, where are you located and why? So I see that as part of just the personalization of communication in general um, and the way technology has been enabling that compared to uh, more one-way methods in the past. Where specifically have you seen that leverage? I know that's been one of the challenges with alerting is to get that, that feedback piece. Uh, is it only social media or are there different mechanisms to make alerting two-way? So in absolutely social media is the most common location that you see that two-way aspect um, to, to posts that occur there. Or even in the case of if that particular alert hasn't gone out via social media, someone might start talking about it and then and then, you know kind of others find out about it and they, and they jump onto that. So absolutely that's been sort of the chief uh, feedback channel that's been emerging. However, um, the, the improvements to 911, um, especially the ability to be able to handle text messages, is absolutely opening the door that we can get a lot more two-way communication from that emergency alert that's gone out, maybe to your, your mobile device. You can actually then text back to 911, oh, I see this, uh, I got the alert. And that can also help with some of the 911 concerns that I, that I mentioned of, you know, you get an overload, a flood of calls, uh, that ability to use texting to be able to take uh, that aspect. And then, of course, there are other technology solutions such as uh, mobile apps and others that allow that two-way communication method uh, to, 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 to go ahead and to, to enable that, that feedback. Because one of those uh, aspects that you're, you're looking at when you issue an alert is, how is the public receiving it? Did they understand what I said or did, uh, is there something unclear? Um, maybe there's a rumor that's circulating. And so when I put out my next uh, notice, notification i'll address that rumor directly to make sure that uh, no this this is actually what's happening um, this rumor is incorrect so that idea of being able to facilitate that two-way is is key but i do see it still being very much a challenge because it is still quite new um, and it's not something that a lot of uh, officials are really used to at this point so it sounds like you know that integration of more technology increases the complexity of of alerting. Speaking of complexity, well, we just went through a big old COVID-19 uh, response. And one of the things I noticed living in Alberta is a notable lack of, of use of public alerting mechanisms. Was that present everywhere? Why wasn't it used? What were some of the, the features that made it more or less usable in, in a public health emergency as opposed to a tornado or something? So absolutely, there were some differences across Canada with regards to how COVID-19 messaging took place. And absolutely, this, this applies um, to, to the United States as well as other countries as well. It was very 
um, uneven in terms of how the communications took place. And I think a lot of that was there weren't really well-developed plans in place. We really hadn't gone through a pandemic of this scale in quite some time. So um, people just didn't really know what was expected, certainly on the public side, and then was expected on the issuer side. Within Canada, um, PZ, we undertook to do a survey of how that COVID-19 communications was taking place because as part of developing our products, we want to make sure that we do deliver um, the best message possible to the to the end recipient, the, the public, to, to get them to take action and to make sure that they understand the message. And so as part of doing that survey, we asked everyone across Canada and it got almost a thousand respondents back in terms of how the communications was taking place. And you're absolutely right. There was a difference between many provinces. Those provinces with a more developed uh, emergency plan in place and uh, emergency communication system usually had better um, better responses back from the public, that the public was more much more satisfied with the level of information they were receiving. In Alberta specifically, uh, Alberta has a very well-developed emergency system, uh, the, the, the best in Canada. Um, they've certainly been doing that since the early 90s. And so they have a very well-developed plan. I know that as part of that, in terms of how that's used, is it's for incidents that are life-threatening and have a time component to them. So, so it's something that's occurring right now and you need to take action right now. And so that's part of how the system is designed uh, to be used. And so in the case of COVID-19 messaging, it was determined that, well, there isn't an immediate action that people need to take. This story has been covered for several months, you know, from January, February, March. The public's fairly aware. We're, we, we're going to use our other channels to get this message out to the public. I do know that there were some uh, modifications made to some of the uh, the Alberta Emergency Alert website and the government, uh, the Alberta.ca website and all these websites to make sure the information was front and center and available and the daily briefings and everything else took place. But the understanding was that this doesn't rise to that criteria of needing to uh, get out immediately because there's an immediate action the public needs to take. Other provinces, there was no message sent whatsoever. And in those cases, they actually didn't even establish uh, anything on their websites or in their social media for quite some time. It was, so there was a significant lag in many other provinces. And then some provinces, we, we found from the survey almost went overboard. A lot of the respondents coming back from Ontario said that they were receiving too many alerts. So the system was, the, the alert ready system, uh, the national method to, to alert was used in Ontario for COVID-19. But the survey indicated that people were getting too many alerts. You know, one is enough or two, uh, and then tell me if something serious changes versus, you know, there are three, four messages coming out. And so there is that balance of what type of method do you use to, to notify the public? How often do you keep it updated? And then, um, you know, making sure that you're, you're, you're providing the, the correct level. And it's always a balance. Uh, alerting fatigue has always been a challenge because of the idea that most communication technologies were very were very broad brush. So it went to a lot of people over typically a very large area and you couldn't really target or tailor the message to the individual. And so I might get five messages and only one of them really applies to me. With communication technology advancing as it is today, we can better target the message to reduce that fatigue level. And once you better target, then you can actually send a little bit more information on a more regular basis. The alerting fatigue issue, certainly we see that was, that was kind of showing itself uh, in Ontario was the fact that the targeting wasn't being done. 
So the technology offers the ability to target, but if you don't use the technology, then you're still going to run into those old broad brush issues that, that do um, raise the concern of alert fatigue. On the eastern half of Canada, it's it's a little bit different story because uh, it's newer newer in terms of a lot of uh, the, the, the alert ready system and its use. And so you do have to take some sort of regional understanding of is the public used to getting these alerts? Is this, this going to be the first time they get a message? And are they going to understand who it's from and, and why they're receiving it? You know, why did my phone just go off? It's never done that before. That's a barrier to them understanding and then and then it kind of accepting that, yes, this, this is useful information and I'm glad I got it. Have we kind of backed ourselves into a corner here in, in Western Canada for the usability of this tool? Is it time to broaden the, the scope of some of these public alerting mechanisms that we spend a lot of money on and people expect to hear from? or even the national tools like the, the text alert? I think absolutely there is the opportunity for more alerts uh, for different types of events at uh, different levels um, and different areas that uh, you know, the public is, is interested in receiving. And we absolutely heard that in the, in the survey that I was talking about, the idea that the public had a much broader range of what they considered an alert than many issuers did, you know. So here, here's our policy on what we consider an alert. It's got to be a threat to life and it's mm. got to be imminent, right? That sort of standard policy with, from the public's perspective, they wanted to know other details, you know. Let me know when there's a case in my area. Let me know when there's a death in my area. Let me know a, a lot of other details that really don't necessarily fall into that imminent threat category. So I think there is the opportunity to maybe revisit some of those, some of that criteria to, uh, to, to broaden the scope and, and take into account what the public really wants to get. But at the same time, once you broaden the scope, then you still run into the challenges of how, do, how, do, how well do we train uh, all, all of the officials to, to follow that, that new scope? How do we deal with the inevitable questions of what's in scope and what isn't when you start to move outside of a fairly well-defined uh, range of events. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's definitely challenging in terms of meeting the public expectations, uh, but at the same time, um, having the policy and procedures in place uh, to make sure that the, you know, the right alerts get out. You know, it's, it's so interesting. Uh, COVID has given us a chance to re-examine everything we do with disaster management. And from my perspective, uh, a lot of the quote-unquote all-hazards plans or all-hazards systems were all hazards except for health hazards um, and didn't really apply to, to COVID as much. Part of that might be the way that we're structured uh, legislatively and the different bodies that attack different, different parts of disaster management. Does alerting have a role in pandemics or, or do we need to rely on a, a completely different channel? I think, I think alerting has a role in pandemics but it's, I think it's got to be targeted. It's got to be targeted. It can't be sort of a broad brush. We're going to alert the whole province when there's a cluster in, in, in you know, the Northwest corner only, right? So in other provinces, absolutely, there were uh, COVID-19 messages. Saskatchewan, I think, had one of the best cases of a fairly effective uh, COVID-19 messaging uh, plan. So they sent out, uh, using their emergency alert system for the province, uh, a couple uh, COVID-19 messages with kind of the standard uh, distancing and, and other types of uh, precautions. Uh, and it was primarily directed at travelers who were coming into the province, make sure that they would quarantine and, 
and, and take all the necessary steps. In addition to that, however, though, Saskatchewan sort of had a unique situation within Canada that they identified a potential outbreak location. Uh, and so they asked all the, the, the individuals within that region that they sent the alert to, if you attended this rally, can you make sure that you report in so we can do some level of contact tracing to make sure that you know, we can get you tested and make sure that you didn't uh, you know, contract uh, the, the virus during this particular rally. So that was a very unique case where they were able to identify a location, uh, a potential threat, and then target the message accordingly to ask people to take an action. And so I think that one absolutely fits very well within the purview of emergency alerting, that there was a potential threat to life, there was a level of immediacy to making sure we get the contact tracing done, and then they use the system appropriately through targeting and personalization of that to make sure that that COVID-19 message got out to the people who needed to receive it. Um, interesting you say about, about a lot of the plans for all hazards. You're, you're absolutely right. When it came to pandemics, in many plans, it was always shuttled off that the health department will handle the messaging for a pandemic. So we'll take care of all these other hazards, which are easy to identify. Pandemic, we're not too sure what we're going to say there. We'll just let the health department handle that. And I think that maybe is where some of the breakdown took place in terms of how best to coordinate on emergency alerts uh, because the health departments really hadn't been in the position before where they were called upon to necessarily use these systems and participate in, in developing these messages specific uh, to those, those, those channels and those options. But I think uh, there's definitely a role to play uh, and, and absolutely out of, out of this, we'll see, I think a lot of people's plans get rewritten uh, and that all hazard section will absolutely have a concrete set of points in there now about this is how you message for a pandemic. And we're not just going to uh, pass the ball over to the health unit and hope that it, it, it goes well. Using alerting as kind of a lens to put on the pandemic has been really helpful for me to think about where the fractures are uh, in, in what should be a truly all hazards um, mechanism. What other sorts of hazards or issues have not traditionally fell into the realm of alerting that maybe should? Well, one that immediately comes to mind when it comes to alerting is missing persons. This has always been a challenge when it comes to how do you handle someone who's gone missing, potentially a vulnerable person, maybe due to age or disability, or um, they've got some other sort of impairment that they, they cannot necessarily be out on their own, or maybe it's weather conditions. Maybe, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're if you're trapped outside and minus 40 and unable to get assistance, you know, you, you've got a serious uh, situation on your hands. And so how do you best message missing persons? That's a key area where you have to use targeting again. Um, you need to make sure that the right people get notified to who can help, who can participate in that search. And so, you know, this this goes into issues of, of Amber Alerts and how best to do them as well. And, and, you know, there are some established procedures in place for Amber but we really don't have a well-established procedures for missing persons. There are some for silver alerts, which are typically used for adults who are older who, who go missing. But even then, those are, that's very uneven. So I think that is an area as we continue to develop the technology and we also develop the processes and procedures about how you do alerting, that we can start to really help uh, a lot of the individuals out there who go missing by bringing the public to bear to help find them.
You know, that's a really interesting example. And as if you've been following the news in the last little while, we've all seen the uh, the complaints, quote unquote, about the Amber Alerts and people facing some backlash about complaining about uh, having to look outside for a missing child. It, it seems to me that one of the biggest differences between an alert for a tornado and an alert for uh, a missing person is the ask. You know, one is protect yourself, there's an obvious hazard sort of thing, and the other is do some sort of civic duty or asking more of someone for something that doesn't necessarily apply to them. How does that sort of impact the message and the delivery in terms of what the ask actually is? Yes, it, it absolutely has a significant difference on, on that ask. Because as, as you point out, the vast majority of alerts are about your personal safety or your personal property or, or your family or, or you know someone close to you, typically, right? You're getting this alert because there's a threat to you. The Amber Alert or the Silver Alert or, or the missing person, it, it's, you know, the shoe's on the other foot here. This is a, this is, there's a threat to someone else. And so you're right. The ask is, how can I best help this other person? And so you have to make sure when you're sending those types of messages out that you make that clear front. We're asking for your help. And I see that as being the biggest challenge in a lot of these messages that are going out where you get the complaints back. You weren't clear up front what you were asking. There's, there's a bit of a public understanding, okay, an Amber Alert means there's a missing child and I sort of know what to do because I've, you know, I've seen it on movies, I've seen it on TV, the idea is everyone go look for the, for, the, for the missing child. But it's not usually reinforced well in the message. It might come at the end if you see the suspect call 911, and that's really about it. it there is not an upfront ask that, we need your help. So-and-so has gone missing, can you please help us find this child because their life is in danger? That type of message absolutely would be much better understood by the public, much better accepted by the public, and then when you were to transition into other types of missing persons, carrying that through as well, that this isn't about your life now, this is about someone's else, uh, someone else's life, and that's why we're asking for your help. So is that sort of action-based messaging or proactive-based uh, messaging, is that, is that kind of abandoning the tenets of alerting where it's quick, uh, hyper-specific to your safety and, and an immediate and solvable issue or is this a stretch of the tool or do you think this is kind of the next steps for public learning systems well i think it's it, i think it's absolutely the next step i don't know that it's necessarily a stretch or an abandonment of the tactics of making sure the message is specific with concise actionable steps that the, the person can take it's just a question of again how do you translate that thinking about yourself into thinking about another person right and in, in that, that that messaging aspect and the challenge you see with a lot of these types of alerts is they're typically issued by police forces. And so police forces have really very much their own lingo. Uh, you know, a bolo, be on the lookout for. That type of language and lingo, we see that in a lot of the messages that are coming out. And so it's not necessarily being written for the public. It's being written for other police agencies. It's being written in my standard lingo that I use within my agency. So when you're crafting emergency alert, you do have to step outside of the acronyms that we use in emergency management and think in the minds of the public in terms of they're the ones receiving this message, make sure it's clear, actionable, and understandable by them, not, you know, not, not 50 characters with half of them being acronyms that only a police officer would understand. 
You know, you bring up a good point about who is at kind of the other end of the phone, who's crafting that message. How important is it to know where that message comes from and how can accountability help with uh, delivery of an emergency alert? Yes, there is a there's a there's a common uh, alerting standard that is in place in Canada as well as internationally. And as part of that, a key element is you do have to identify who's sending the message and that identification needs to be in a format that's easily understood by the public. So that comes out in all the messages that are delivered. The challenge we have in some of the other uh, channels that are available to us is that they don't make that attribution front and center as much. Something like uh, radio and TV, when it breaks in, if the, the, the person who's crafted the message doesn't put their name in it, it doesn't appear in that message. And I've seen some horrible examples, unfortunately, in Canada where, you know, this is an emergency alert. And it goes on to explain the alert, but it doesn't say who it came from or, or why. And, and, and so you do have to remember those platforms that you're working with. Not all of them have the, the, the full capability of something like Liberal does to be able to provide that attribution. You've got to remember to repeat that. So it's got to go into what you're going to put on radio and TV. It's got to go into what you're going to send out via the alert ready text messages. You have to put in some level of attribution. And that attribution not only makes sure that the public understands who the message is coming from, and so therefore has, has a good lens in terms of how to, how to interpret it, but it also makes the person who sent it accountable. Because that is key, is if you're going to send out the alert and you're going to craft a good alert, you should be putting your name on it because you're the one who then should be handling, of course, any feedback or repercussions that come from that alert. You've got to be able to be confident in your message that it's, it's, it's good, it's got good information, as, as best information you know at that time, and put that out there and then and then make sure that the public will then understand it because you've you've personalized it and and again that really comes back to sort of my, my message about you know personalize it for the end user and also almost personalize personalize it for the issuer as well you know this is coming from us um, we're establishing that trust relationship with you because we sent you this alert we want you to trust that it's got good information in it we want you to trust that uh, you're taking this action that we've asked you to do is the right thing to do. Um, and as part of that is, of course, in any trust relationship is you've got to know who it came from. While we're talking about kind of risks inherent in public alerting, what are some other things that would make an alert fail? What should emergency managers be concerned about uh, when crafting alerts? The biggest thing they need to be concerned about that causes a failure is when the system isn't used. When you have a system and, and it's just simply not used because then the public asks, well, why was it? Why didn't it happen? Why is it not used? So the thing that an emergency manager has to get comfortable with, has to embrace is uncertainty. As an emergency manager, you, you know, a lot of your job when you're dealing with an emerging incident is uncertainty. You really don't have all the facts up front. Things are emerging as, as the, the, the situation progresses. And so there's this desire to always want to go out to the public with a full and complete message. So we're gonna wait until we've got all the details that I can craft a perfect message that I can get out the door. It's gonna tell the public exactly what to do. And I won't have to worry about having to come back and, and, and fix a mistake later. I wanna get out that perfect message. And that's where the failure occurs. The minute you think that an emergency message has to be perfect is when you're, you're going to fail. When the, when the system as a whole, and when I, I don't mean just the technology pieces, I mean the, the people and the processes that go into that whole system, that's where the failure has occurred. 
you really have to embrace uncertainty because the public will also follow that as well. If you are upfront and clear, this is what we know at the time, at the, at the time and we'll get back to you with an update when we know more, absolutely accepted by the public. In fact, that's almost expected by the public that you're going to get back to them with an update. So that is where I see the biggest failure in the overall system is that that understanding of embrace uncertainty and the message is never perfect. How forgiving is the public uh, with a wrong message or a, a false alarm? Um, we've had several in, in recent memory of potentially uh, damaging um, uh, cry wolf instances. Does it damage alerting? Uh, it's absolutely part of public alerting make mistakes. There's, there's kind of two different sides to that of, of what you mentioned there. So one is issuing an alert that doesn't have to be issued in the first place because it was a mistake. So it was mistakenly issued. And that's, that's a little bit different than I'm issuing the alert and I get a little bit of the information wrong because, you know, the situation's evolving. I don't have the details. So um, there, there, is, there is definitely a real difference between the two. The public absolutely wants to know about the information and is very forgiving about a minor issue or even a major issue within that if you come back quickly and update them later because they just want to know that something's occurring and they want that confirmation that you're on top of whatever is occurring, right? Because I do run into that pretty regularly when, I, when we work with the public is that even if you don't give them a lot of detail, they just want to know that someone's looking into the problem. You know, I see the smoke. Good. You're on top of it. You may not know what it is from, but at least you're looking into it. And that gives me that level of comfort and understanding that I know you're going to keep me informed as the situation progresses. On the other side, absolutely. For those cases where the alert has been issued completely in error, there can be a loss of public trust there. What compounds that loss of public trust though, and this is coming back from the research of uh, the Hawaii uh, missile crisis incident, as well as the uh, situation in Ontario with the false nuclear alarm, is the longer you wait to correct your mistake, the less forgiving the public is. So if you realize you made a mistake, you've got to correct it right away. And you correct it right away, people are far more forgiving than if you, you take an hour, two hours. Why did it take so long? For you to, to correct this? Why did you leave this hanging out there with this information that, at the, that you knew was now incorrect and took so long to update? So that's key is if you've made an error in any shape or form, fix it quickly. Leaving it to fester absolutely does nobody any good uh, and certainly on, on the public side can, can cause a lot of questions about, about the efficacy of the alert system. Awesome. So we've talked about some of the ways in which public alerting uh, can be damaged or even can be damaging. What are some of the advances you expect in the next little while? What does the, the future of, of alerting look like? Definitely the future of alerting is this continued move to personalization and, and being able to directly target uh, the message to individuals. And you see this with, with a lot of advertising you see online where you know those ads, they seem very well targeted to you. Uh, certainly your social media feed they're very well targeted to you and so a lot of those algorithms that allow you to be able to receive that target information will be put to use when it comes to your alerts and, and warnings that you receive as well we still very much have a lot of these broad mesh technologies that we use that you know just blast the message out but the ability to then take that message and better tailor it to me and so i'll give you a, a really good example is uh, on the wireless emergency alerts so there is a new standard for 
uh, emergency alerts. It was an updated version of what we use now for wireless alerts that now also sends much more detailed location information in the particular alert. So whereas before it would just kind of blast out the, the 300 character message to the, the wide area, now it's sending the detailed location of the threat. And your phone can receive that and make a determination, am I in this area? And now what action should I take? And so not only am I getting this potential text message, now I'm getting all these details. Where exactly is the threat? Am I in it? Where is it moving to? What actions can I take to avoid this particular threat? So maybe I should go south on the highway instead of north. That type of personalized information, that's where I see a lot of public alerting taking us uh, because that gives even more impetus to the to the recipient to take action then, right? It's not this, this general message that I don't know is for me. The message pops up and says, turn around and head south. There's a tornado ahead of you. That's the type of message you're going to listen to. So much more than just geo-targeting, geographically-based analysis of threats in real time. Interesting. What do you think won't change? What are the tenets of, a, of alerting that are going to be with us for some time? Uh, definitely, the things that are going to be with us for quite some time is the understanding that alerts can happen at any time, and they're not a predictable event. And so there's always going to be something that doesn't work out right. And whether it doesn't work out right in terms of uh, how best to craft a message and, you know, there's some errors in it, how best to target the message, whether to issue it or not, the, you know, the type of the types of uh, issues we've seen come up with with the COVID-19 type of messaging. That's always going to be with us. We're never going to be able to develop sort of a perfect system when it comes to emergency alerting. It's always going to be an ongoing developing and evolving uh, type of system. The only mm -hmm. constant is change, eh? Absolutely. <laughs> Fair enough. Jacob, thank you so much for your time for this epic interview. Thank you for everything you're doing to keep us uh, informed, alerted, and safe. Yes, thank you. It's been great. That's a good conversation, uh, Grayson. It's always interesting to hear about public alerting. It's such an important uh, uh, area of knowledge for emergency managers. Mm -hmm. And I liked how he finished by saying it is ever-evolving. That is certainly true. And one of the great quotes that I think came out of that was to embrace uncertainty and don't wait for perfect. It's a, it's a really challenging thing when you look at the some of the psychology of alerting. Uh, the discussion about alerting fatigue I thought was really interesting. Mm. Just coming from the healthcare background, there's been quite a bit of research looking at alert fatigue in the healthcare setting. And what that means is alarms and, and uh, monitors that beep in the background. And there's been a few big studies looking at the negative impact of these uh, kind of false alarms, so to speak. The Boston Globe actually, back in 2011, published an article that claimed 200 patients had died in the previous five years due to alert fatigue. And essentially, it's a needle in the haystack phenomenon. If something's beeping at you all day long, then you eventually start tuning it out and then and potentially miss a an important alert. And, uh, you know, the research has kind of looked at how can we improve healthcare technology to make alerts more useful and uh, make them more responsive to what uh, we actually wanted to be alerted about. Yeah, and that's interesting. It flies in the face of what was once thought to be a, a disaster myth is that increased alerting will actually decrease uh, responsiveness of the, the population. I think we have all experienced a little bit of alerting fatigue or information fatigue uh, during the pandemic. Where do you think alerting could have been useful during this pandemic or a, a public health 
emergency? Well, yeah, I think it's a challenge when you look at these wide area disasters. And we've mm. kind of talked about this before with ICS. It works well when you can you know, draw a line around where the incident physically is. But what do you do if the incident is everywhere, if it's all around you? And I think that's kind of the, the problem with these uh, localized alerts, and that's how they were designed, you know, to, to alert you about a tornado. One of the areas, though, that, you know, probably would have been helpful early on was some of the uh, pivots as our understanding of COVID changed, for example, uh, messaging around public health emergency orders or social distancing requirements or mask wearing, things like that might have been useful as an extra a tool to kind of communicate specific actions when they came up. That's right. I like that term pivot pivot from talking about the incident occurring in a space to what do we do about this now known threat. I would have also appreciated uh, a little ping on my phone every time there was a new public health order that came into effect. Yeah, and uh, now that we're talking about having the ability to make the alerts hyper-local, as certain municipalities enacted their own local uh, guidelines and um, emergency orders, uh, that could have been a, a kind of a hyper-local way to let you know that you know this city requires mask wearing or this city requires uh, a certain process before accessing public uh, facilities, uh, that sort of thing. And I, I know we're talking about an all-hazards alerting process, but there are, of course, many hazard-specific specific uh, alerting processes and, and monitoring systems out there. You know, everything from fire and smoke to earthquakes. We actually did used to have a pandemic alerting system as well uh, called the Global Public Health Information Network or the GPHIN. So for those of you who don't remember, this was actually formed in the late 1990s by Government of Canada in collaboration with the World Health Organization in a bit of a response to a, uh, a plague in India that in, in ended up impacting the Toronto Pearson International Airport as well. And they did such a good job that they in fact uh, were accused once from Russia of spying after the uh, GPHIN analyst determined that a rash of illnesses in Chechnya was actually the, uh, the result of a chemical release that the Kremlin was trying to keep quiet. So uh, Google tried to buy this. The World Health Organization was really, really impressed by this and even called it the foundation of, of global pandemic early warning systems. But unfortunately, it was shut down in May of 2019. And as you might imagine, uh, investigations are ongoing as to whether or not that was a good idea. And the Public Health Agency of Canada is reviewing and thinking about starting it back up uh, again. In fact, there are two um, reviews going on, one from the Canada's Auditor General and then one from uh, Health Minister Patty Heiju, uh, who's doing an independent federal review. So hopefully we can see that come back. Public health really is a you know special situation. And I think when we look back at a lot of our exercises, we kind of just assumed public health was its own little special area of, uh, mm -hmm. of expertise and that the you know, public health departments would take care of things, which does lead to a bit of role confusion sometimes with what is the role of an emergency manager, um, especially if you're not you know, embedded in health. Uh, I mean, if you look at the opioid uh, crisis, for example, would there be any role in public alerting to let people know that there's a opioid uh, crisis happening and if you did you know what sort of specific actionable information would you be giving look at uh, droughts or famines and other big you know wide area events uh, the alerting model uh, is a bit different and, and nuanced in those situations yeah it really goes back to is all hazards really all hazards and i agree with you i think there really is a division between geographically isolated disasters or we could say quote-unquote natural disasters and these large systemic 
catastrophes. Uh, not only is public alerting a good example of how those two paths have diverged, but even if you look at our legislation and the way that we're set up all the way to the top of federal government, there is a huge gap between public health and public safety. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you can sometimes have unintended uh, consequences. One example that's uh, happened in a few jurisdictions in Canada was, uh, you know, the releasing of uh, so-called heat maps to show either by uh, LGA, uh, your local geographic area, or by postal code, right, community, where cases were, uh, you know, first popping up uh, for COVID. And the idea was that you could, you know, have enhanced uh, precautions and, and social distancing in your area. But, uh, you know, what many people did when they saw that, if they saw their neighborhood light up or, um, you know, their local shopping mall, for example, they would actually travel farther and, uh, and go to new areas and say, well, I, don't, I certainly don't want to shop uh, in, in my local area now because, uh, you know, there's been some positive cases and, you know, you had people actually spreading out uh, farther. Um, so you can definitely get unintended consequences. And if you just give data without context or without specific instructions, I think it uh, leaves a lot to interpretation. Yeah, the public communication during the pandemic has definitely been a learning curve. And one of the the great things about the pandemic is it has forced innovation. And one of the, the really interesting pieces kind of to do with alerting that has come out uh, in, in the pandemic is the contact tracing applications. Yeah, I mean, contact tracing is uh, certainly nothing new in its own right, but the kind of mass use of, of technology to leverage that, uh, I think, is, is quite interesting. Yeah, and if you think back to what Jacob was saying about the future of, of public alerting is making it hyper-personalized, well, that's exactly what happened. Uh, these contact tracing apps came out, and it's about alerting single individuals based on uh, not geographic risk, but kind of experiential risk and uh, and risk over time. So my question for you is, you know, what can we actually take from this innovation into the the all hazards world or into some other public alerting? Yeah, I think it speaks to uh, finally seeing you know, a practical use of risk personalization. If you allow people mm -hmm. to kind of optimize their risk profile, these are the specific things I want to be told about. Uh, you know, people can uh, are going to make their own risk determination anyway. So you might as well have an alerting scheme that matches what people's perceived uh, risk is. I think, I think as long as you have a way to, uh, you know, certainly have some mandatory alerts if it's uh, something that's going to affect everybody. Um, but otherwise, I think the more customization, the better. And hopefully that translates, or at least intuitively, you think it would translate to more uptake. And, and if people can kind of tune the, the station that they're interested in, so to speak, they might be more likely to, uh, to listen. Well, here's hoping this opens the doors for some more individualized and more innovative methods of, of public alerting. Now, we've got some interesting news here at Epic Podcast. Very excited to announce that Epic has partnered with the brand new, soon-to-publish Canadian Journal of Emergency Management. Uh, we're about to do our Journal Club article here, but future Journal Club articles will be supported by CGEM, and you should definitely check them out at uh, cdngem.ca and get your abstract submitted. What do you have for us today, Josh? Yeah, so for today's Journal Club, we are going to take a look at some gray literature. So not our typical uh, academic uh, scholarly publication, but I think still some uh, important uh, uh, 
uh, work that uh, all emergency managers should be aware of. This is a report that came out a few months ago from the Ontario Solicitor General uh, that kind of ties in with our episode today, uh, dealing with the accidental nuclear emergency alert that was transmitted uh, back in January. So after that event happened, for those in Ontario, uh, you might have received the alert personally. Others probably heard about it in the news. Um, there was a formal investigation that went on afterwards, and that report has been made public. Uh, so just to quickly uh, uh, kind of summarize, and for those who aren't familiar with what happened, this was on uh, Sunday, January 12th. It said, this is a province of Ontario emergency bulletin, which applies to people within 10 kilometers of the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station. An incident was reported at the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station. There has been no abnormal release of radioactivity from the station, and emergency staff are responding to the situation. People near the Pickering Nuclear Generating Station do not need to take any protective actions at this time. Remain tuned to local media for further information and instructions. Uh, Grayson, if you woke up and saw this alert, what would you be thinking? I have to say. I would have woken up a little bit faster. <laughs> a classic example of dread risk. You know, if you mention nuclear in a mm-hmm. sentence, pretty hard to, to say anything afterwards about, you know, not panicking and not no need to act. Obviously, this was a pretty big hiccup for the emergency alert uh, system in Ontario. Uh, to basically kind of summarize what the report talked about, the sequence of events was such that um, every morning the duty officers in the PIOC in, in Ontario uh, do a shift change procedure, and that involves uh, logging into the alerting uh, interface, making sure their you know login credentials work, and then logging into a training environment where they actually will simulate sending out a practice alert. And um, under the regulations for for nuclear emergencies, there was a, a preformed list of canned messages. Uh, the idea being, you know, if it's a canned message, it should be quicker to transmit. And uh, this one of these messages was selected and sent, and then after it was sent to the uh, uh, duty officer uh, realized that it was actually the live system, not the training system. So this kind of kicked off a big cascade of of confusion, multiple notifications. Obviously, OPG, uh, which you know runs the nuclear facilities, were very concerned because they hadn't heard anything from their internal processes. You know, uh, kind of executive and political leadership were reaching down for information. The media was asking for information. Um, so a pretty startling uh, way to you know kind of start a Sunday morning. Um, the report details the timeline minute by minute over uh, what uh, ensued afterwards and what notifications were made and some of the confusion about how do you cancel a alert that was issued in error. There was no published policy or procedure for dealing with uh, accidental alerts. So that might be one of the big takeaways um, from the report in general is, is we probably need to have a plan for this if it's you know all hazards. Um, so the uh, the officials reached out to the various stakeholders, explained that it was in fact a uh, an error, but then there was quite a bit of debate about should we send out another intrusive message, meaning intrusive means it interrupts uh, regular programming and, and broadcasts, uh, should we uh, it, you know send out another alert just to tell people that it was an error. So, anyways, that's what happened eventually. But uh, it, it, very interesting read, and you can, to- I, you know, you just feel so terrible for the uh, the the duty officer because you can totally see how, uh, just considering human factors, how a system or a mistake like this uh, could happen. So, uh, so this process was looked at in a bit more, a bit more closely during the report, and some of the recommendations highlighted. 
this uh, difficult balance between wanting to have a, an alert go out quickly, but also having some reasonable safeguards, reali you know, realizing that real-world harm can happen uh, if uh, alerts are sent out in error. Some of the, the, the changes in the report uh, recommend that uh, there should be a two-person verification system. So think back to like Cold War you know, nuclear launch codes. You need the two separate keys. Uh, so that gives you some amount of safety in uh, avoiding accidental uh, releases. And also the, the systems factors. So uh, not kind of setting uh, humans up for inevitable mistakes. Uh, so uh, having uh, software safeguards that don't allow the two logins to be open at the same time. So you can't have the training environment and the, the real world environment open at the same time. Make sure they look distinct and different and having processes in place to ensure that you can't uh, accidentally send out a message uh, quite as easily. It also called into question uh, this concept of having canned responses and uh, uh, you know, the traditional teaching was that you want every second counts, but we understand now that really there's some nuance there. We want to actually make sure the messages are personalized, that they are uh, kind of crafted, you know, to be, to be the most useful um, that they can be. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a move away from preformed, pre-canned messages, maybe having some templates to help you craft a message. But if you don't have pre-canned messages just sitting there waiting to be sent, then that's probably harder to send it because you'd have to actually craft the message first. I can see this being really useful in cases of fatigue as well. You know, you crafted a, a message, then the situation changed and you had to recraft, but you're operating on two hours of sleep. Uh, I think these sorts of measures would be useful in that case as well. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Now for this week's tool of the trade, I am going to promote Alertable. Uh, so Alertable is PZ's alerting app and it scours all of the alert ready entries and a lot of the municipal entries. Really, it, it gets you all of the alerts that are going on in the world and you can customize it infinitely down to your area or the type of alerts that you'd like to see. So easy to customize, easy to personalize, and it's free. You should definitely download it today. I know they do a lot of work with organizations as well if you need something a bit more tailored. Um, the other app that I feel like we should uh, talk about today is the, the federal or potentially provincial contact tracing app, depending on where you are just for the sake of uh, making sure that we are COVID alert and pumping as much information as possible into the app so that it can continue to improve and we could drive towards that future of individualized alerting. That's all we have for you for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks again to uh, Jacob Westfall for sharing their, uh, his time and expertise with us on the topic of emergency alerting. Just before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Uh, this episode was brought to you in part by ATB Financial. If you're wondering about how to manage your finances, rebuild emergency savings, or continue to save for your child's education, ATB can help. ATB was built to answer Alberta's financial questions in tough times. ATB was built to help Albertans. For answers to your questions and to learn more, visit atb.com. This episode was also brought to you in part by the Alberta Forest Products Association, who has prepared a clip which I will play for you now. Alberta's forests matter to all of us. That's why Alberta's forest industry works to keep them sustainable now and for future generations. By planning 200 years ahead, helping control the spread of fire and disease, and planting and nurturing two trees for every one harvested, we keep our forests standing strong. To learn more about how our forests take care of us and how we take care of them, visit loveabforests.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV.
As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at the username epic underscore underscore podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.